Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are discussing objectives of public procurement and the law and social media for academics. Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Marta, good to see you again, or speak to you again, I should say. Well, you technically do both, right? Well, I, yeah, fair enough. Granted, you win. Uh, our, I see list, you, our, listeners our listeners cannot don't... see me, but right. you can see me. Exactly. Yeah, no, but it's good to, to speak to you again. Um, Absolutely. Likewise. Today, we'll be talking about um, objectives and uh, goals or uh, whatever synonym you'd like to use of uh, public procurement and uh more importantly, the law, I would say. And uh, we thought this would be interesting, one, to provide a bit of an introduction to this topic. So I don't think our objective necessarily is to provide uh, uh, an extremely in-depth overview of all the discussions that have been going on, of all the related objectives, uh, but perhaps also a bit of an introduction for the newbies in uh, public procurement law or public procurement professionals. And let's just not limit ourselves too much. Say we do go in-depth, I hope those people and other people will forgive us, right? Is that Does that sound like a plan? I think that, you know, we sort of approached this when we started to plan this episode, right? Of just sort of having kind of basic couple elements to sort of frame a lot of public procurement conversations because from that perspective, the objectives are quite important, right? Because through them, you interpret a lot of different things. But this is a topic that, you know, academic wars, so to speak, sort of have been have been battled over. It actually ended up very quickly as realizing when you look into details that it's very complex, actually. And there are many uh, viewpoints and there are many very valuable arguments brought up. So that's the reason that we're not entirely sure if we if we won't confuse more than actually clarify more so but that's our main for today absolutely so i think um with a little bit of hesitation and a little bit of anxiety we start this discussion <laughs> is that right no i'm just kidding uh let's start with an introduction and then we'll see where this where this leads us um perhaps um we can actually start with why is it important to talk about objectives when it comes to the law, right? We can talk a bit later about the objective of public procurement. Uh, is that the same as the objective of, of public procurement law? But you, because you already mentioned it just then, I think maybe that's something we can tackle. <clears throat> because ultimately, I think the question of why it is important to really distinguish what an objective is of a law uh, is important for the interpretation questions, right? So particularly within EU law, I think that's relevant. So um, perhaps you could start off by saying just something briefly about functional interpretation, grammatical interpretation. Why should it concern us what the objective of is of, of the law? Well, I think that I actually would want to, um, I, I will get to the point that you're making, but I think that a, a line of introduction why this subject in general is really important because it informs in many ways you as a practitioner or you as a scholar or you as a, a you know a sort of commentator in any space within within public procurement sector 
depending what you believe public procurement is about or public procurement law is about, that's how you perceived ultimately interpretation of further provisions. So in other words, if you have a very linear, uh, very sort of economic, let's say, approach to public procurement, and you believe that that's what public procurement is on the basis of variety of sources, and I'm right now not limiting it specifically to law, but in general, then it will be very difficult for me to have a conversation with you and, and in any way convince you or debate about, you know, inclusion of societal and environmental elements within public procurement. Because your starting point, that's the normative point of what we're saying, what, what you believe the law really says or what procurement really is about, will be substantially different to the other person potentially. Yeah. And I think that this is a little bit like if our if if, if we don't say that up front, what we understand as an objective that I think very much can inform the further conversation. So I, I, I've observed a couple of times, you know, on if that is different conferences or just conversations that, that people somehow seems to miss each other in the conversation. And that very quickly, when you establish where your starting point is, it makes it clear why that is so. And um, when we then specifically look on on, on public procurement, and, and there is definitely a question of, well, what's the objective of public procurement versus what is the objective of public procurement law? And then we can also talk about public procurement law on the EU level, on the national level. We can also talk about, um, you know, sort of um, ver variety of perspectives, right? So it's, I think that uh, that's also very important to, to consider. Um, and then when we also specifically look at the law, it's important to consider, well, what is the method of interpretation of the European Court of Justice and in general, the European law methods of interpretation versus what are the method of interpretation of law in different member states? Because I think that it is clearly to be distinguished that if you apply a functional method of interpretation. In other words, you're focusing on what the law was intended to achieve on the basis of the legislative notes, um, the uh, legislative process, what is in the recitals. You, you, so to speak, treat more seriously the re recitals, the preambles, in line with the actual provisions, because you focus very much about what was the intent to be achieved. Versus if you um, apply this very uh, liter literal grammatical uh, interpretation method, you solely interpret what is written sort of by hard letter of law and what is within the text that is binding, right? So I, I would see that there will be, you, you will arrive, you potentially may arrive at different conclusions. Would you agree with, 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 with this point, Willem? Yeah, no, I, 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 I realize that I always say yeah, no, when I say want to say yes, it's a very bad habit. It's a very Australian way of going about it. Yeah, nah, yeah, no, no. Um, so I, I just blame a continent for, for how I approached your, your answer. Um, but getting more down to, to, uh, to what you were saying is, I think in terms of the functional and grammatical, I think for, from a lawyer's perspective, that's really important. And I like how you broadened it a little bit. And also talking about what is public procurement and what are the objectives of, of the laws that we're faced with. And I think that also to add to that, that has a practical element because in the end, um, us lawyers, but also public purchasers are faced with all these different objectives in practice, right? They're the ones that actually have to then 
comply, add to it, and make sure that they're actually fulfilled um, in, in each and every individual tender, which can also be quite complicated if one, there's uncertainty as to what the objective is, and if there's, you're faced with multi-layered objectives, um, uh, adding public policy goals into it. So say sustainability, circular economy, uh, uh, which are super important for say energy transitions. Um, but, you know, add the internal market perspective to it, add, you know, different objectives such as the fight against corruption to it. So I think uh, in, in addition to what you were saying um, about what public procurement is, what are the objectives, uh, I think there's a practical element which then would stress the need for clarity. And the question is, is that clarity there? And perhaps to start off with that, um, uh, given that but we are lawyers. Also, there is also a question, I think, of really um, theoretical background to it. And just at the risk of, of you know, really kind of geeking um, for, for a second. Our field of law is, I would dare to say, uh, quite un there is a lack of theories. <laughs> Let me reward it. It's a very practical um, sector of, of law. And a lot of our focus is about well, how the law is, what it says, how we are to help the practitioners, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that there is also a layer of, of, of debate that is often missed that I like, which is you know, the sort of the theories uh, and sciences sort of behind really the roles of government. And, it, and, it's, and it's a little bit more, you know, stretch, but there is this question about also, well, what is the role of the government in a state, right? Are we a pro a more state interventionalism um, in the successful stories of, you know, U.S. post-war? How, how good was that in the sense of how that had a potential to boost the local economy? Something that is very transferable, I think, right now to think about in context of post-COVID, right? Oh. Is the government putting money into the market and so on, how they do so? Um, but then the other side of that is really, you know, uh, this, this, this hardcore commercial market approach and saying the state just should limit themselves as much as they can and they should let the market kind of be. And that is then also connected because one of the comments that um, my good professor, uh, my good colleague, Professor Michal Kanya at some point uh, made, which I thought was really good, was, well, you know, the problem with state interventionalism is that this works only if the state knows what they're doing. But if you have um, those decisions and those roles in the wrong hands, it can be really problematic. So I think that this is all like the theory that underlines approaches also that stands a little bit broader and further from, you know, this very article by article analysis, what law says. And that's why also you have these different cultures when it comes to procurement, right? You got the more like French approach, which is procurement being seen as something of a much more public nature, administrative nature. The public interest is much more perceived as an important versus this more private law um, sort of tendencies, which is, I would say, the Nordic approach very much sort of striving from Margaret Thatcher and the UK sort of approach of, of you know, state, state away. Um, and this is a slight digression, and I know that it's sort of withdrawn a lot from this very nitty-gritty interpretation, but I think that it's important to put the debate of that we're having about specifics in practice in context of where we come in, what we perceiving, and why we all might differ in our opinions. Yeah, for sure. And I think also those those normative standpoints ultimately led to laws, right, being adopted. 
And I think it's fair to say that much of the law that we have now is based on economic integration, right? And that's, I think, also why we often debate, why we even say perhaps, and I don't like the term, but like why we say secondary objectives, right? Why we even make a hierarchy, and you know, we'll get back to that in a bit, but like why we even say sustainability is something that we need to fit in, right? Um, and I, th I find that interesting. And I think also there is where you see that, you know, objectives play such an important role with how we perceive uh, uh, the functioning of the state, but also how we envision contracting with, uh, with, with uh, market parties and externalization. For sure. For sure. And, you know, to the point that you're making, I think that I just would want to add another sideline because why I fully agree with you that, you know, the, the whole internal market um, integration predominantly focus on economic considerations and so on. It's again, you know, um, I have a little bit, not issue, it's it's a too strong word, but what I would want to highlight again is like, yes, it was about economic aspects and so on, but what was ultimately also the first starting point of having EU? It was peace, right? So I think that there is also a layer of that that we tend to forget that, and, and I think that this broadly understood other consideration are intertwined all the long the EU uh, timeline of development of different laws. So yes, it was economic integration with the objective of trying to intertwine interest of the countries in such a way that we have peace, right? And ultimately also what we have right now, I think is a challenge. If you look, um, if you would look on the economic law developments versus the sort of social human rights developments, they all being legislated on EU level, but they very often don't talk to each other. So it's like two parallel channels. So then when you're starting to clash them, which we very often do, you know, the moment that we start to talk about sustainability and procurement, that's where they clash because they somehow are not aligned together. But then also when you look at the European Code of Justice um, case law in that regards, court is always extremely careful about saying very, in a, in a anyhow direct where the economic consideration are more important than human rights for the law of EU. You won't find judgment like that, right? They always balancing up and don't say way too many, they don't say many things rather than sort of pointing it out. And um, yeah, this is sort of digression, but I think that this is a sort of all a lot of very important, I would think, conversation that are happening and consideration that need to be taken in as a sort of behind the closed doors or, you know, the sort of back end of conversation specifically or our today's subject on well, what is ultimately the the public procurement law objective. Yeah. I think to, to move on to that, because you provide like a nice link up, I think, to getting a bit more concrete when sure. we talk about um, different layers of objectives being piled on to contracting authorities in practice, but also for lawyers to have to interpret for actors to be involved with is, um, uh, I suppose, leaving the international aspect aside, if we would focus simply onto the European level, um, say I would, perhaps it's, it's useful if I just read out loud the way the directive starts, right? The classic directive sure. is, uh, I think there's two relevant elements. Uh, one, the way it starts in the in the recitals, but also what Article 1 said, says about procurement and what it is. 
And it starts off like this. The award of public contracts by or on behalf of member states' authorities has to comply with the principles of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, and particularly the free movement of goods, establishment, uh, freedom of establishment, freedom of services, as well as the principles derived therefrom, therefrom, therefrom such as equal treatment, non-discrimination, mutual recognition, proportionality, and transparency, right? So that, I think the directive really kicks off with this internal market perspective, right? Is that we have these, these um, directives um, since the 70s to create an internal market, which has caused, say, local procurement to be banned, uh, national procurement to be very limited, but really that we open up to contractors from all across the EU. And I think it's relatively, but dare I say, uncontroversial to say that that would be the main objective, or that would be at least one of the objectives so of, what, of EU what you procurement would... law. What you would then say is the one, because I think already here there is a fair bit of I think different the, the, opinions. Uh, yeah, for sure. There's discussion here, but I think, mm -hmm. uh, to put it uncontroversially, mm -hmm. uh, it's the creation of an internal market creation for public contract. Creation of an internal market, yeah. yeah. So can I ask you, because already within this preamble, there is an interesting element that I would be very curious to hear how you read it. When the preamble refers to application of the Treaty on the Function of a European Union Principle, is that covering the principles that are spread across all the treaty within the Treaty on Function of the European Union? Or is it specifically in this section that talks about principles that ultimately that section talks about competences? It doesn't mm -hmm. give you really principles. It talks about competences. Well, the way I would read it is I think there's a clear specification in in the in particular section, right? So the mm -hmm. principles of the treaty, which I think is the stand general standpoints, and then free movement. And I think that links yeah. up very clearly with the legal basis of the directive, which is still free movement, right? No, also... for sure. For sure. But that's just like, you know, I think, so I think that there are like three layers, right? The, the, or four, yeah, four layers that I personally see, right? I, the, I'm envisioning now like a cake, like a wedding cake. Because I think that it kind of is. And that already is not very simple, right? Because it's the treaty principles, the, th the treaty on function of European Union principles. It's, it's the internal market freedoms. It's the procurement principles that are already mentioned there, right? The transparency, et cetera, et cetera. And then there is under the conditions of open competition right yeah. so already within that there is tons and that already is not particularly clear i think because you know for me the question that already from this strives exactly what i'm what, that's the reason that i ask you because this is something that i've been thinking actually if you go very directly to the treaty and you look specifically on the principles there is a section on principles, but there we all know that there are principles that are referred to as principles of the treaty that are scattered across the treaty. And you know how broadly you kind of understand that element, right? And then a second element, so it reflects to internal market free movements, right? Fair enough, free movements, but how we understand them today in 2021, are we understanding them exactly the same way as they have been understood the moment that they've been drafted? Because I would say that, you know, internal market changes over the years, right? Internal market, particularly how we perceive an internal market changed after the Lisbon Treaty to become a social market economy. For sure. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? Right. So, you know, this is and we didn't go anywhere further. We're still on preamble one. Right. Yeah. And I think what's what's even more difficult is when you make it when you rightly so complicate things, Marta, I think it's. 
does anyone really know what a social market economy is? I mean, no. it has, um, it's, a, it's a market economy that is also social, right? I mean, I get that starting point and you can use it as an argument to say that Europe is different, but <clears throat> because that's not further explained or what that really the implication is of that change of concept. Um, I think it, it just merely says that if something is different, but what it is, I find scholarship really hasn't really found a conclusive answer clearly to no, that answer absolutely that question. Not. But you know, this is ultimately where I'm particularly looking at, you know, conceptually at this stage, the reason why I wanted us to have this debate, because of course, one way that you can go about it is to go in this very sort of conservative, traditional approach of saying very economic considerations solely, again, with very narrow understanding what that is and competition. And that's what we've been doing for a long time. But I think that I, what I'm interested in is that it's a very easy way to say, oh, sustainability is an object or should be an objective of um, European public procurement. But for that to happen, the whole structure and everything within sort of objective and sort of context within EU law would need to change. And we sort of touched upon it in, in the report that we did about, um, that, that you also co-wrote, on uh, moving forward the reforms to kind of support sustainable public procurement. But I think equally interesting is the scoping of actually how we understand the current values, objectives, things that we currently have. And if there is not a valid space for just approaching it as a dynamic interpretation of the law, that, you know, the law does not need to necessarily change. Is this, is this, so the old school approach, just because we right now have, you know, all this social media and all these different things, do we need a new laws or do we still have the privacy laws that we used to have? And just interpretation needs to be broader. And that's where, you know, my mind goes. And can is there enough space to actually just consider the terms that we take for granted? And that then brings us to the second point, because what clearly does not come forward, I think all our listeners can hear is value for money as an objective within EU public procurement law, right? We don't have reference to efficiency of spending, value yeah. for money. Even and though if you like look that, at it from, right? the, from the national level, that's generally where national procurement law Absolutely. started, right? Right. So that's exactly then the second point of saying it's again the different layers, which I don't think make it easy for, for practitioners working in, in this field, because I would say... I will make a bold statement, and I would really hope that if that's a mistake, our listeners will contact I, I, us. Actually, I wish uh, I wish I had like a button with a drum roll right <laughs> yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, but I would say that probably majority, large majority, if not all, national regulations, when they talk about public procurement, the first reference is somehow to financial accent to the point that you need to spend the public money in an efficient way, not maybe not necessarily going to corruption, but this sort of efficient um, spending of money. And then some member states have also referenced to sort of control over that spending, which is uh, sort of indirectly referenced to the fact that we need to make sure there is no corruption. Yeah, I think those are the two very basic. So efficiency often then turns also into effectiveness, but yes. not in a broader scope, right? And then you have, it quickly links up with the fight against the corruption. And I think in recent years, also on the national level, you're really getting more things like value for money in a broad spectrum. So also including social, including the, uh, the sustainability objectives as a broad scope. So not just quality, but like also adding to the bigger obstacles or 
the bigger challenges of the world at the moment. Absolutely, because this then brings us, you know, to another point right now, if we for a second consider this objective of national levels, right? Value for money or efficiency in spending or something of that type. This is, again, where you can take two routes. Or you can go, well, this is very economic, sort of standard way how we used to do it for a long time. And there is no space for this fluffy stuff that sustainability is. But when you actually go into the literature on what value for money is, what I discover at some point, the term that has been you know, thrown around really as, as, as something that is really tangible versus opposite to sustainability that is very untangible, that's not true. Value for money just transfers to, well, what it is that you value, you're going to put there. So it's, again, you know, not very kind of objective. And that's the reason that another space that I think we could really consider is when you're thinking about value for money in your objective, in your national objectives, is how you put into the quality to the value of money this this social or this environmental elements as a part of your quality. And that's all then becomes, you know, really tangible. And then you escape this thing that I really think we should drop today in talking about secondary considerations. Yeah, for sure. Totally. And I think also that uh, because it, it assumes some type of hierarchy, even though I also understand, and getting back to what we were just talking about with EU law, I do think because of how the system of free movement law is set up, you know, first we identify an economic a barrier, a legislative barrier to trade, which is generally economic incentivized. And then we can justify that barrier by using public policy considerations, you know, the uh, and and uh, so I understand where the, the difference comes from, but in a way, also when we look at setting up our courses, our public procurement courses, I'm wondering sometimes why do we even still call it? Why do we have a subsection on <clears throat> this is how you yeah. procure sustainable, sustainable why innovative outcomes? Why isn't that it? the standard? Yeah. Right? Why yeah. shouldn't no. it just always be sustainable and always leading to to social outcomes? Right? And I'm with you on that. I know that you know the interesting. A comment that I came across when it comes to this secondary element is that notion that because for you to consider sustainable aspects, they need to exist within the frames that are set by the primary objectives. Yeah. Which is a valid point. But at the same time, I would say, but isn't it that for there to be an, you know, particularly when you look at the at the competition aspect, right? Is it enough to have any type of competition or is it to have the right type of competition? Meaning, you know, the right pool of bidders, the ones that are actually obeying by, you know, this the set points, um, the established laws and so the verifiable and certain and certain way. So I'm just wondering what is that one needs to fit to another or it's a more relationship sort of between them. And to be honest, at this point of, of the research, um, I'm, I'm, I cannot, it's much easier to see that one needs to kind of fit into another, that the relationship one, uh, relational one, but I'm not sure um, whether you see it similarly or not really. No, I, oh, Marta, do we ever not align? I find it's, hmm. it's very difficult. Oh, well, I suppose sometimes, but yeah, you're right. I, I mean, one, I think it's terminology based and I think we definitely need to get rid of that. So let's, let's, let's try that. Cause I sometimes find myself slipping as well because it's such a used and I know horizontal objectives have also been used to kind of, but I still find that puts it outside of, so perhaps we could just say, um, that, you know, what it is, 
we need to do is just really put sustainability and social social uh, objectives on the forefront. Um, well, another thing is also when you're talking about, you know, sort of uh, just different wording and so on. I think that it's also the space that I'm really interested in is rather than talking about multi-objectives of public procurement, is really also investigating, is it multi-objective? Is it continuously multiplying? Or it's rather that they are all interconnected and you can build some type of like a relationship, you know, I, I don't know necessarily if that is a pyramid, but they are very interconnected and actually can be sub sort of categories of the same issues, right? So is it rather not multiplying the objectives, but it's rather redefining the objectives that we have and the interpretation of them? Because, you know, the well-established um, sort of challenge or difference in opinion of, of view is, for example, whether competition, right? Like how we approach competition, but that's principle, which is maybe a little bit sidelined to all of the conversation that we have because we're talking about objectives today. But whether that is connected to transparency principle, equality principle, is that something on its own? And I kind of think about very, very much this discussion that we have right now. Is it that we need to say that sustainability should be from whatever reason, because we believe so and we try to find a way as, a, as an other objective of procurement law? Or this is just something that needs to be redefined in the way how we understand internal market, ultimately? Yeah, but I, I think that's that's a really valid point. And uh, I, I mean, just getting back to this clash between economic and sustainability, right? So more practically, right? When we're looking at discussing sustainable procurement, right? We want sustainable outcomes for the future. A public authority has a certain need. We want to get a sustainable outcome, right? That's a very important objective, right? But then based on the public procurement rules, generally speaking, we would need to also get contractors involved that are from different member states, right? Whereas local production or local purchasing can be very effective to achieve sustainable outcomes, right? So Absolutely. there's a clear clash there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how you when it comes that. to, so local procurement versus internal market is super important. So when, you know, if that is the underlying objective of the law is to create an internal market for public contract, then you know, lots of authorities end up coming to me and saying, well, I mean, it's all fa fair and fair game. And we understand that that's an important objective to, to integrate Europe in terms of trade. But what about sustainability? If that means that we can't buy local products, right? And I think mm. that's a fair point and it kind of challenges uh, the, the, the status quo, perhaps. Oh, it absolutely does. Because, you know, before we started recording, just, um, we, we did talk more specifically also about food procurement specifically as a specific sector, right? Yeah. And and that also feels so tangible of this, this notion of also, well, how you, because we often um, also think about, well, how we buy, we as customers versus how we would want the government to buy. And, and and yeah, it's great that, you know, you can buy certain things from the US, the newest technologies, the newest phone, et cetera, et cetera. But this is, I find in a, in a many way, it's, it's quite opposite these days more and more when it comes to food, right? Like if you can literally go to a farmer next door to you and pick up the carrot from the ground, you probably would want that carrot the most than anything else. So, so sectorally, it's also interesting. But then my question here would be, 
don't you think so how you feel about uh, you know the the green deal and the notion of establishing a certain minimum standard sectorally that ultimately will inform specifically what you buy this is also a little bit interesting because it slightly throws off the notion of procurement as procedural law on how you buy but actually what you buy yeah. within itself is you know quite shifting in many ways but would that not support, on at least on some sort of way, this notion that will how you will procure? Uh, it will be less important for you to kind of do this sustainable procurement through the process if you have a minimum requirements that will be hopefully harmonized. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think that takes away a lot of the pain that's currently, uh, or at least some of the clash that occurs. I think what I have difficulties with, and perhaps we can make a small reference to two of the episodes that we recorded on this, on the EU Green Deal, but also on the role of courts, we discussed this a bit more, is what we're seeing is that a lot of sectoral regulation is popping up, but outside of the context of, public, of the public procurement directive. Yeah. So, so in a way, the clash still exists <clears throat> or can still exist. Yes, you have to require that minimum unless you really go for the product-specific uh, regulation, which is, again, another alternative, right? Um, so I, I think all of this underlines kind of the, the importance of, um, of, of the, 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 uh, the objectives of public procurement law. And I'm trying to I think we need to round off our discussion sure. a little bit and get going on social media. But I think uh, what we've clearly highlighted is the importance and there, that there's so much room for debate, right? I, I, this kind of felt like really a conversation that we would have at a, at a conference dinner. Absolutely. We would also have have silly talks, right? So let's not Definitely. worry. <laughs> and but, I think that one last thing that is worth to highlight, that there is also one more topic that is important for this conversation that we won't answer within our podcast due to time restraints, but hopefully we will come back to it at some other point. That today we specifically focus on objectives. But another similarly, very similarly important and sort of fundamental question is what are procurement principles? And why objective pursue kind of, you know, the end goal, the, the principles are the one that inform us, well, how we get to that end goal, right? And, and, and all this variation of, of, of questions and, and challenges is really present in both. So I think that just like a little sort of teaser, hopefully for some upcoming episode. Um, but that's another thing that is quite important in this debate. Yeah, for sure. I always love that when like one of us is in the lead in the episodes is that the other one just jumps in with one last point. I find that I do the same. So I'll, I'll grant you that space. But totally no. I mean, when you look at the internal market, you know, the principle of equality, transparency, they're all very functional in a way to achieving that objective. So I, I feel the nudge towards another episode about this, perhaps in the future. We'll see if we can come up with something. Um, but for something now for something totally different, perhaps dessert. totally different let's do dessert uh we promised something about social media for for academics and i think we're 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 talking to uh we're preaching to the choir uh we're both very active or used to be or or sometimes are if it permits on either linkedin um i suppose i'm a bit more active also on twitter or used to be a bit more active i know you've kind of dropped that and well, we can talk about the reasons for that, or at least that you're less active there, I suppose. Um, uh, but you, you suggested it. So w what was the, the intention or why did you want to talk about it? Yeah, so um, this is actually something that really inspired uh, me to have a chat a little bit about it um, from, from, from the meeting and, and, and conversation about communication and dissemination of your research within the Sapiens training. And, and talking to this 15 young 
uh, academics that are just starting their the career. And um, under that project, I'm responsible for work package that is broadly referred to on, on communication and dissemination. They got, you know, training on, on dig- digital communication, all these different things. And um, certain questions have been sort of, you know, if that is in between coffee breaks or during the meetings, they were popping up. And, and, and I thought that they were all relevant. And if those people had those questions, I'm guessing that maybe our broader audience would uh, relate to that too. And that is, um, well, great. I would, first of all, do I have to? And also, do I have to, if I have to, um, where, which spaces, what is better and how to kind of go about it? And I think that we address that because we very much address that in the sense of saying, look, you really don't have to just choose maybe one, maybe two that you really feel kind of most comfortable with and just go about it in the space of how you how you think it's 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 appropriate. What we highlighted there was also that, well, you also need to consider what you want to do with the social media, right? Do you want to, with who you want to connect, how you want to interact? Because we know that those social media have a little bit different spaces, right? LinkedIn will be much more like the more senior colleagues or pra- practitioners will sort of exist in that space but more um, versus for example Twitter is much more popular in the United States than it is in, in in Europe broadly right and that's a sort of generalization again it's a bit depending but it's again I think that it's a little bit younger crowd but not as young as let's say the newest sort I of I like the conclusion that I right? can draw with this so I'm more active on Twitter you're more active on LinkedIn what well would, I'm older than you we know that right <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know if I fully agree with that that LinkedIn would yeah. be a space for more senior people. I think what I do fully understand is that it can be scary to get out there, right? I think, uh, particularly yeah. as a young researcher, to like perhaps those feelings of imposter syndrome, which I still have. Um, also, when you think like, what do I really have to add, and why should I be able to post something, right? Even though people, Partic- that, yeah. yeah. Particularly when you, you know, at the beginning of your career, because the question kind of finally was asked, well, is this just a new publish or perish just, you know, in a very different context? Do I need to be there to exist in academic, um, academics sort of of 2021? 20, 20, and then, well, how I do that, because if I just start a PhD, I, if I'm just sort of at the beginning, is my voice really kind of valuable or it will come and how I'm not coming across as, you know, bragging about myself. And I thought that those were all like very yeah. good points. And um, yeah, and you are very digital, as you said yourself. So I was hoping that, you know, maybe you also have some sort of advice how, how to what, what would be your advice in this context? Well, I don't know if I have advice, but I think that it starts with what type of academic do you want to be? Right. And I'm not that's not there's no normative of, uh, value value there i mm-hmm. think uh, there, there's a very good arguments to say that there's that there's valuable academics that teach and that do the research and that publish and that's more than enough right even though it can sometimes seem that we you know, touches upon a different dessert that we had right the recognition and rewards like what mm. what do we strive for as academics are we that and i refer to it then are we sheeps with six legs or five legs right do we need to do everything and I don't mm. think that you should do everything. So I fully agree with what you said about sometimes it's not necessary. But I think um, uh, when we talk about public engagement, perhaps, right, stake, involving stakeholders in your research, uh, reaching a broader audience. So perhaps 
stepping out of the legal sphere, but also engaging with public public procurement professionals, right? That aren't necessarily, they deal with the law, but they don't think about it uh, on a more fundamental level. Or perhaps even one step further, a broader audience. So I think identifying what you would like to do and, and how you see yourself as, as a scholar, I think that's very important. And I think that lends up with what you just said is, what's the purpose? Why do you want to use it? And mm. the way I've always seen it is, uh, one, uh, uh, to get feedback. I, I think many people in academia underestimate how much how many people actually read uh, your work, right? Think about paywalls, but also... Um, uh, uh, but in a sense of how that works, though, on social media, that you would refer or link to your work in that sense? I, I would say, and, and this also links up with the bragging aspect, mm -hmm. uh, I think that that's a silly argument to make. Or at least I'm, I'm totally over academic saying that that's bragging. It's not bragging if you add value. I yeah, but you know, it's this, I'm sure that you've seen it because it was circulating for a bit in the last week on, I think, on all social media, you know, this sort of photo of the fact I got a driving license, yeah. LinkedIn posts, da 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 right? Like, I'm yeah, so grateful that I've been one of few, da da, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know. Uh, there's a little bit of that, and I fully, yeah. uh, I, I sometimes also do that, uh, but never without adding value. So I think if you post about, uh, the, uh, say you contributed to a conference, right? I spoke mm -hmm. at a conference for all the universities or the purchasing departments of all the universities last uh, last week. What would be bragging is to say, I spoke there. Yeah. Me, 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 so important, me. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in a way, what it, why I think it's important to still share it is because you can add your slides and share those to the world. Because mm -hmm. perhaps people, it might be useful for what you did. You could add your key takeaways, right? Your key point that you made to start the discussions also on LinkedIn or Twitter, right? Or on Facebook even. Um, so I think not just show, but also tell, right? Show what you have done, but also perhaps when you've published a paper, give the key takeaways or the key conclusions, summarize those, whether it be on a thread on, on Twitter but or on a, a post on, on LinkedIn or an article that you post is, I think then you add value and that actually also shows that your intention is not to brag, but your intention is to create discussion, which I think is a very important and role that we have. I think that it's, you know, also just form. I think it's just a form how you do it. If you come across like, you know, grateful for, I don't know, getting funding or being invited someone, I think that good way is also trying to think about all the other things associated in yourself. So, you know, um, highlight your collaboration. If we co-write an article, don't say that, you know, I was one of the co-authors, but like just, you know, write, you know, I've worked with those great people and thank you so much because I learned so much from working with you and so on and so forth. I think being grateful is one way in the way that it doesn't rub people the wrong way. I think particularly when you're young, younger, sort of academic, Another good way could be actually to highlighting others. So the same way they highlight you, you know, you're on a conference and you can post, you know, Willem gave today this fantastic presentation about X, Y, and Z. And he recently published paper. I thought it was super interesting because this and that, I would warmly, you know, encourage you. Give someone else a bit, you know, sort of spotlight because then it comes back also to you. And as you say, you contribute, but you're showing that you have a different interest than just highlighting you. One of the comments that I got from, from one of the colleagues that was sort of leading this, um, this uh, training on communication and dissemination, which I was very 
humble and grateful. She said, actually, I think what I did, you know, the practice of, of, of what you and Willem are doing is quite nice because you always sort of kind of hide, and I don't mean it as a prerogative term, but hide behind projects. So focus on the content. What is the content that you're doing rather than you as a person at the forefront? And I think the last thing that also came to my mind, and I and I when I was uh, thinking about also you came to my mind, and I was thinking whether you would be so kind to reflect on that, is that you also do need to have sort of very on off like on personality. So or you are super present on social media or you're not. I think that it also comes through different periods. There is a period that you're super like focused and write, and you won't be doing much of that then because what you're going to write or oh, look at my sandwich and coffee. Why I read 50th paper right <laughs> yeah and also something that i was also quite inspired and i'm looking more and more to to other people to 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 follow is i'm not sure whether you read recently um on how to crack the knack our our friend albert's post about yeah. sort of also becoming a new parent and, and and sort of challenges as an academic um, of that and also how you start to prioritize your time differently. It's sort of different season in your life. And I think that's just to show that, you know, there are different periods and sometimes you'll be more on social media, sometimes you'll be less. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, totally. I, I, one, I really liked reading that post because it made me feel like a bit more of a... Um... Like, let's just say I wasn't alone out there. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel uh, sort of, I'm not the only one? Yeah. yeah. And I think just, to, just to, to, to breathe, uh, two more things, or at least uh, that I'd like to add in reflection to what you were just saying is, I still think there's value to posting on social media. I publish this without adding value. I think it's always better to, to add whatever conclusions you've come to, but I still think it's valuable because what if that post meant that someone actually got a new idea? or actually that wasn't aware that this was published, uh, that it, it happened. So in a way also, you know, in life, sometimes you've got to put up the streamers yourself, right? Yeah, but One isn't that I published this? Isn't that I published it? You still say what you published and there is still a work that you're sharing. Isn't that still content? Yeah, fair enough. But some a lot right? of people would say that's bragging. I'm not going to post that. People should find it themselves. They can find my profile page. But I think then then you're living in an old school world where yeah, and also like you worked on it. I think as long as yeah, I think that this is one of those things that is very subtle. Like I can see how people and some posts. Sometimes I see some of those posts and I'm like mm, a bit much. But I but I also see plenty that I'm like you know someone is just disseminating the work that they did and great exactly. because I find out about it and I probably wouldn't either way and I could download the paper right now and learn something new. Sorry, I totally hijacked your moment. Yeah, I've actually forgotten my second point now. <laughs> Apologies, that was not intended. <laughs> I, might, I might have to come back to that later on, but yeah, I, I think ultimately when you when I think about use of social media, I think it's really about <clears throat> to find how you would like to use it in light of the academic that you want to be or think you feel comfortable with, not everyone feels comfortable with having this. I also don't think everyone needs to have a podcast. It's just that we like doing it yeah. and we think it's important, but that doesn't, because we podcast, perhaps we can write one or two articles less a year, right? It's also about time and about what you feel comfortable doing. So I think there's a superstar in every academic, but there's no, not one single superstar. Um, uh, but I think though, and this is a, a uh, and now I've got the point that I wanted to talk to about is support. I think in a lot of these, because these questions pop up when it comes to public engagement activities involving 
stakeholders in your research, reaching a broader audience, setting up more practical things like a podcast, or how do you post these things? I think academic institutions and law fact law schools <clears throat> in particular don't offer enough support when it comes to this. So yes, sometimes there's a media training for senior for seniors, uh, but that's it really, or at least in, in the Dutch uh, uh, schooling. Perhaps also because it is seen as something that's not important to our work. But I think as we ride the wave of recognitions and rewards and changing how we evaluate academics, I think that support aspect should definitely um, pop up a bit more to not only help PhDs, but assistant, associate, all types of researchers, full professors to, to, to explore this should they want that. Absolutely. I agree with you. And that is, I think, the perfect ending now to this. Finally, <laughs> I've heard Wrapping you say up. it. I agree, I agree with you. No, um, uh, Thank you so much for, for, for chatting today, Marta. Uh, we looked at objectives. Uh, we talked a bit about, about social media. Uh, this was a mistake. The Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestek, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com.